I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Okay, so I am here with a, a guest that I am one of the 2.97 million followers of. When I prepare for slow-mo, I tend to prepare a day before if I don't know the guest very well, because I also don't want to lose the novelty if you, if you think about it. So yesterday I switched on my computer, looked at YouTube, looking for Ali Abdal, and uh, basically I was like, I don't need to prepare. I've been watching his videos since forever. One thing that I constantly felt every time I watched a video of Ali's was that I like this guy. Like, I don't know why I like him. I feel that he's a wonderful human being. And when I met him today for the first time, I felt exactly the same. Ali studied medicine to be a medical doctor in Cambridge University. He actually worked in the National Health Service in the UK for a couple of years before he decided to give all of that up and be a YouTuber and uh, a very good one at that. He basically is trying to teach the world about how to live a better life if you want. Health, wealth, love, happiness, and impact are his five categories. And in an interesting way, I honestly and truly recommend that if you're not following Ali Abdal, I think you should. Maybe we should all together get him to the 3 million because 2.97 doesn't look like a great number. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I think you would uh, really, really thank me for it. Uh, amazing tips on simple sometimes and complex sometimes things, but really gets to the heart of some of the things that make, her, make us healthier, happier, wealthier, and so on. So I'm honored to have, I'm at his place. I was just a guest of his podcast. We spoke for a couple of hours at least about very interesting topics that you probably should see as well. Uh, Ali, thank you for hosting me on allowing you allowing me to host you on uh, Slow Mo. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's it's a real honor. And I feel very imposter syndrome talking to you about these topics, <laughs> no, which no, you no. have so much more experience than I do. But not, like, not true at all, actually. Yeah. So, so, so what I love, love, love about your work is that I would take a topic and write a chapter of 44 pages on it to try and get people to grasp that concept. Mm. And you would prepare a six minutes video. And I go like, that was good enough. You know, I, I sort of didn't need the rest of it, honestly. Uh, and I, and I am amazed at that. I actually am I'm amazed at how effective this new medium is, not new anymore, but this modern medium is to communicate to the world. Also, I'm amazed by how you can um, compress so much in such an interesting uh, new way of doing things. So how do you do this? I mean, what, what's your process? What, how do you create content? Yeah, that's a good question. In a way, I don't really think of it as creating content. And when I think in my mind of like, oh, I'm a content creator, the, the, there's something about that that feels like it doesn't really resonate with, with what I do. The thing that I do, I think, is that I teach and I document, basically. And the great thing about that is that 
I'm in sort of document mode when I am in the process of learning something that I think is interesting, and then I'll document my process of learning it. And I'm in teach mode when I feel like, oh, I've learned it to a level that's maybe one or two steps above the person who I'm aiming the video at. And so in a way, it's not, it's not like I'm teaching as a guru, like I know the answer, here's the answer. It's more like as a guide that, hey, I've, done, I've been on this path, I may be one, one or two steps ahead of you, and let me kind of talk, like show you the way that I've worked. And so for me, compressing an idea is more about putting myself into the mind of the person who I was two years ago or one year ago or however long ago I didn't know that, that thing. And this thinking like, what did I, like what were the little tidbits of insight that I needed to get to that point? Mm. I try and turn that into a little video or a podcast or whatever. So are you saying that when you're making a video, it's something that you actually didn't know before? So it's not, you're not teaching us what you know, you're teaching us what you didn't know. Yeah, yeah, to an extent. So I, I've been doing this YouTube thing for five years now. For the first year or two, I was teaching stuff that I knew. Very quickly, I ran out of all the stuff that mm -hmm. I knew. And I was thinking, uh-oh, this is, this is bad. Like, I like this YouTube thing. It's really fun. But then I realized, hang on, like, every day I'm learning new things. I'm constantly reading stuff, constantly listening to your podcast, coming across interesting new books. Why don't I just document the stuff that I'm learning as I'm going along? So we've got, like, one of our most popular series on the channel is called Book Club, where we, every time I read a book that I think really resonates with me, I'm like, great, let's turn it into a little book, like book summary kind of episode. You know, what are the five main points that I took away from the book? Some personal insights. I'm like, oh, this bit completely blew my mind. And then people either read the book because they like the, like the video or don't read the book, but got something out of the video anyway. Absolutely. So that's, that's how I do it. So as you go through those five categories, do you sort of assign to yourself and say, okay, we're going to talk about personal finance for a month? Or are you like driving somewhere and then poof? an idea hits you and you go like, I'm going to do personal finance. This is a good idea. And then the next idea could be something else. Yeah. It's uh, it's more the second one. It's, it's a bit more intuitive rather than linear to use that, that terminology. Essentially, I, I initially started out making videos that help people get into med school and then transition into videos oh, that help. Oh, that the case? Yeah, that's that's how the channel started very, off initially. Very useless, I would say. No, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, helping people get into med school. And then when that when I exhausted my supply of that, I was like, all right, cool. How do I help students become more effective get learners? Get out of med school. Yeah, to, become, yeah, exactly. Become, become entrepreneurs. <laughs> that was the one. <laughs> and entrepreneurs, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very useful video. Yeah. Did you ever regret not following that path of med school? I mean, people who get into to med school are probably, first of all, it's the hardest to get into. And then you're normally driven by that, you know, feeling of, I want to make lives better, sort of. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I was driven by that feeling. Well, you're not. Yeah, yeah. I, think if, I think if I'm being honest, like when I was 16 years old, like here, here in the UK, we have to decide very, very early on whether you want to do medical school, because that dictates your choice of exams and work experience yeah. and all that. And it was always between medicine and computer science actually, mm. because I did a lot of coding when I was younger. I had all these little website projects. I was like, oh, I'm going to make money on the internet. And um, when I was 16, I was like, okay, do I want to do medicine or do I want to do computer science? And there were two reasons why I went for medicine. Number one, uh, six years at university seemed more fun than three years at university. <laughs> okay. And everyone says university is the best time of your life. Uh -huh. And number two, I thought it would be more interesting just in general to be a doctor who knows how to code than to be a random guy who knows how to code. <laughs> That's such an eye-opening state. I believe that, actually. Yeah. yeah. And so in my interviews, I had to sell a story of how I liked science and liked helping people, which, which was all true. But I'd be lying if those were the primary, primary reasons why I did it. That's a very bold and very honest statement. I, am, uh, I actually appreciate that very much. I believe that most people who go into med school get that moment in their life where they go like, what am I doing here? 
you know, it's, it's not for everyone for sure, is it? No, definitely not. And I think one of the one of the things I don't like about the system in the UK is you make that decision so early on yeah. and then you're wedded to literally a lifetime of a career choice that you made when you were like 14 or 15. Mm. And the person you are at 14 or 15 is very different to the person you maybe are at 21 or 25 or 28. And so there are a lot of doctors that I've come across over the years who made that early decision to do medicine and maybe at the time an idealistic decision or a genuine decision of like, oh, I, want, I like science, I want to help people. And then as they went further down and further down the escalator, as it were, they sort of realized, oh, maybe this isn't for me. But at each point, there's this inertia. It's like, oh, but it's only one more year until my specialty. It's only three more years until this. Oh, I've already made it so far, sunk costs and, and, and all that stuff. And there were even a few kind of fully qualified consultants that I, I spoke to um, who were in their sort of 50s and 60s. And, you know, they would find out about the YouTube stuff and they would have this sort of wistful look on their face of like, oh, I wish I did something else other than medicine on the side. And I'd be like, oh, why don't you? And they'd all be like, oh, like I've got the mortgage, I've got the kids in private school, I've got a, I, I wouldn't know what else to do. And so I think I've ended up in a very privileged position where I had this sort of tech bro background as well, running concurrently with medicine, which then took me into entrepreneurship and ultimately into the YouTube channel, uh, where a lot of people don't have that. So I try and encourage everyone to, hey, medical school is all great. Like it's wonderful. Like being a doctor is super fun. I was doing it for two years, had a great time. But if you have other interests, it's worth exploring those on the side. I think that's a big, big call to action. I mean, very few people actually do that because like you rightly said, people get on a track and then it becomes really, really difficult to uh, to change that. And it's I, I agree with you. I think it's like the most important thing you can ever do with your life is to step back every few months, if at least not every year. I mean, I normally use the last week of the year and the first year week of the next year and ask myself, is that the life I want to live next year too, mm. right? I look back at that year and say, is there anything I would like to do differently? Would you ever foresee yourself doing this differently? Would you ever foresee yourself giving up on being such a an internet sensation and, <laughs> and deciding to become a, um, I don't know, mortgage broker or something like that? Yeah, I have occasionally dabbled with the idea. Did you? But then, <laughs> yeah, um, I was actually speaking to someone yes, two days ago who started off as a YouTuber, then became a videographer and is now a real estate broker. Is that true? And he's helping us find a property to move in as a business. So that's kind of interesting. interesting. Yeah, literally okay. in the last like 24 hours. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, at one point with, with the book that I'm writing, initially it was like the first few chapters were on this thing of like, how do you figure out what to do with your life? Mm. And I did a whole bunch of research because I was, I was struggling with this. I'd been doing medicine for a year or two. I was like, is this really what I want to do? Like, how, how do I know what I want to do? And I came across this one exercise, um, which I then gave a name, the gravestone technique, which is to basically ask yourself, what do you want written on your gravestone? And I saw that on some blog post. I was like, oh, hello, okay. I thought about it. And I realized that the three things I wanted on my gravestone were good father, good husband, and inspirational teacher. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Had, hadn't thought of that before. And then I sort of plotted my life back and realized that most of the moments of true meaning that I felt when I was teaching someone something. So when I was 13, I was a tutor for maths. When I was 17, I became a tutor for chemistry. When I was 19, I helped people get into med school and, and so on and so on. And I always enjoyed teaching medical students way more than actually practicing medicine. Mm. And then after a bit of soul searching, I realized that like, if that's what my life amounts to, good father, good husband, good teacher, I'd be very content. And so I suspect the things that I'll do for the rest of my life would be hopefully in that vein. But of course, preferences change. And so I reserve the right to change my mind if, if, if new data comes to light. 
interesting that you say that. So I, I don't remember exactly which video attracted me to your work. I started with a video. I think I was looking for how to set up my studio or something like that. And you popped up on YouTube. And then the next video I saw was very controversial, honestly, but I thought it was really valuable where you were looking at, I, I think, a quarter of your revenue and business. And you were saying, here are my revenues, very openly saying, this is what's coming from sponsorships. This is what's coming from YouTube. This is what's coming yeah. from the podcast and so on. And you, in my thinking, it looked to me like that you're running this like a business, really. It's like the content is not about being a teacher. I am a teacher because it makes my business work. Which of it? Oh, really good question. I, th I think about this a lot. And I think this decision of, am I a, a teacher first or a businessman first, then strikes out a lot of decisions that we make as a team and, and as a business in terms of our core values and our mission and, and all this stuff. And I don't know if I'm just bullshitting myself, but <laughs> I, I often think that like, if I won the lottery and, and had three times more money than I have now, <laughs> than I have now, and then I wouldn't need to worry about money. But if, if, if that were the case, what would I do with my time? And I think, honestly, I'd, st I'd spend my time basically doing the same thing that I currently do, reading, writing, teaching, recording podcasts. Um, and another exercise <laughs> that I found after the Gravestone Technique, when I was figuring out what to do with my life, was this idea of the ideal ordinary week, where the idea is you fast forward five years in your Google Calendar, and you hopefully you don't have any recurring events that are leftovers, <laughs> but you block out what, yeah. what do you want to do with your time? Well, you finished your work now, <laughs> yeah, you're exactly. still there in five years. You're like, yeah, one-on-one yeah, -on -one with all my direct reports. Um, yeah, so it, you, you block out what you'd want your calendar to look like. I was thinking, you know, one day a week, I'd like to come into a studio with a, physical, a real team in person. Maybe in the morning, I hang out with our researchers where we're kind of doing some, like looking at all the new papers that have come out in the field of psychology, sociology, behavioral economics, anything that helps people live their best lives. And we think, oh, this is a cool, cool new concept. Let's interview that academic. Let's talk. Let's let's amplify their research. Um, you know, the other half of the day, I might spend kind of figuring out scripts for a video. I spend one day a week filming and kind of sharing with the world, and one day a week maybe recording a podcast episode, and the rest of the time reading and writing and just doing doing whatever. Um, and I think that if I if I won this proverbial lottery, the only thing I'd stop doing is just making courses. I just put those for free online because the only reason we charge them for them is so that they sustain the business. Mm. And so really, you know, we talked about the idea in our interview of finite and infinite games. I think my infinite game is to be able to continue learning about stuff that I care about and then teaching that stuff to people in whatever format that looks like. I have to say, Ali, one of my favorite answers ever to the question of purpose is what you just said. And I, I, really, I really think people need to pay attention to this. If you won the lottery, would you continue to do what you're doing is an incredible test because that basically shows if it's passion or if you're just being pushed by life. Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably add to it if nobody judged you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So this was, I, I would say this is a question that's actually changed my life. I, I need to, that would be a good video title. This question changed my life. But <laughs> the, this is actually the question I would, I would ask to doctors from my first year of med school onwards. I would ask, you know, anytime I became friends with a doctor in the hospital or whatever, like, you know, just out of curiosity, if you won the lottery, would you still do medicine? And half of them would say, no, I would leave immediately. Absolutely not, yeah. And the other half would say, I would still do it, but I'd go part-time. Interesting. And so I'd be like, okay, well, why don't you just go part-time? And it would always be about money, like, oh, mortgage, private school, kids, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd be like, oh, interesting. And it, it was around that time that I discovered the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss and yeah. discovered the idea of like passive income and multiple streams of revenue. And I realized, oh crap, if every single doctor I know would either quit or go part-time, and the only reason they're not is because of money, that means 
I need to optimize my life. <laughs> I decided this in my first year of med school. I need to optimize my life from making loads of money on the side so that if I'm doing medicine, I'm doing it for fun rather than to pay the mortgage. And so that question of what would you do if you won, if you won the lottery, I think I, I, I still always come back to that. And if, my, and if my life is right now is too far out of alignment with what that, that future looks like, then I know there's something worth picking at and pondering and be like, hmm, why am I doing that? Is it only just for the money? I'll come back to that in a minute, but I have to say when you were talking about this, it just kicked immediately in my head. One of my favorite books of all time is Freakonomics. And Freakonomics basically discusses the real motives why people do things. And when you really think about it, if your doctor is just doing this just to make money, how much of a doctor does that make them? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how, how much should you trust that? And, you know, even though I, I don't think that the doctor that made the mistake that took Ali's life meant for that to be, I felt he was absolutely trying to save my son. But how many doctors out there are just doing another operation, prescribing another thing? I remember once I went to a dentist, very strange experience, uh, where she was very lavishly dressed with a tiny little white uh, coat on top of the very lavish dress code. And then within the first 20 minutes of me being there, I had done every possible thing that could charge me money. You know, like 3D x-rays and this and that and molds. And I was like, what? what's going on? I, I just wanted to see if this tooth has a, a cavity in it. That's it, really. I mean, why are we doing all of this? Because the objective really is not to save my cavity. My, the objective is to, to make a little bit more money from all of the tests and x-rays and so on. Do, do you believe that this is the world of our internet today? I mean, if you don't mind me asking that, you're a prominent figure on social media it seems to me that there is very little genuine interest in people actually making lives better. And it's more about, I am an influencer, I can make money. Not talking mm. about you, by the way. Everyone listening, you should follow <laughs> Ali. That's a really good question. Before I, I tackle that, just one point on the doctor front, and this is one of my more controversial opinions, but I strongly believe that nothing is fun as a full-time job. <laughs> and I think there are so many people I know in medicine who went in with the best of intentions and genuinely love it but they're just working too hard and completely burnt out. The system, at least here in the UK, I've heard this is the case in the US as well, doesn't allow for doctors to actually take time off and have rest. And therefore, with the best will in the world, the compassion for each individual patient starts to significantly diminish over time and you start to treat it as a bit of a conveyor belt. But I think that's a function of the system and the thing rather than as individual doctors not being sufficiently kind of compassionate or motivated or whatever term people Such an use. interesting point, actually. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's difficult uh, just because of how our brains adapt and filter and so on. If you're just doing the same task yeah. 200 times a day, you, your, your attention to each task yes. by definition has Absolutely. to diminish, yeah. But to your second point, so I think, again, this is something I think about a lot. It seems like we're on a similar wavelength with, with a lot of these questions. The idea of like, are there, you know, people being influencers for the sake of clout and money and fame and prestige rather than to actually help people. And it reminds me of something, are you familiar with Matt Mokery? Mm. He, he's a, this uh, Silicon Valley CEO coach who wrote the book, The Great CEO Within, and coached a bunch of entrepreneurs and stuff. And in that, he talks about the three motives that a founder has. Number one, make money. Number two, have fun. And number three, help people in that order. Mm. And he's like, usually most founders will like tell themselves that they want to do all three, but really they're optimizing for making money. Yeah. And so what you might as well do is just in your, in your, when you're young, just optimize for making money. And then when you've made enough money, you'll think, okay, now I want to optimize for having fun. And then after a lot of having fun, you'll be like, okay, cool. I've had, made my money, I've had my fun. Now I want to help people. And then they start shifting towards impact. And his view was that 
if founders just leaned into that and just made the money and then later on in their life started doing the philanthropy, the making an impact stuff, that would be pretty good rather than sort of trying to half-ass it at the beginning of like, oh, I'll do, I'll, I'll do a bit of volunteering in the soup kitchen while running my startup. And so similarly, I think, uh, I think of like influencers, creators, whatever you want to call it, as businesses. And I think for any, any business, those, those three things that are there, make money, have fun, help people. And there are very few people I know who care about helping people until they've made money and have fun. And I think for me, I'm, I'm no exception. I do have some friends who are very in, into effective altruism and started charities. For them, help, helping people is the primary goal. But I'd be lying if I said that was true for me and most of my creative friends. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't blame anyone for that. I think it's, uh, it's really quite interesting. I feel that helping people can actually be a lot of fun. And honestly, it can make a lot of money. But yeah, it's <laughs> like a little like yeah. Venn diagram, yeah. arrows going backwards. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't blame others for, for thinking otherwise. Can you tell us about the book? So you, you mentioned it a couple of times. What's the title? How far are you? When do you think it's coming out? Yeah, don't know what the title is yet. It's still, a, oh, we've been, we've drafted 150 different title variations. I, I haven't, yeah. haven't figured out the, I feel, yeah, I feel like with titles, I've heard, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that like, once you land on the title, you think, yes, this is it. As right now, it's all of them are a bit like, uh, not really sure. Yeah. I don't know how it feels. It's not Atomic Habits. It's not the subtle art of not giving a f***. Those are amazing titles. But so title uncertain, but the concept is that basically it's a book about productivity, but with a twist, like with all modern self-help books, there's always some kind of twist. And the twist is that I think the secret to sustainable productivity is to try and harness energy from the work that you're already doing. And we're talking about this idea, and this might be this might become a title. So I, need, I just need, I, need, I need to register the, the the domain names before someone takes this. But <laughs> the idea of a dynamo, you'll be familiar in physics. A dynamo is this device that turns work into energy through spinning magnets. Yeah. And we've all had those days where you know we we we've all had we've all had experiences where if you're hanging out with certain people, it feels like it really energizes you. But you hang out with other people, and it feels and it feels like it really drains you. Mm. And similarly, those days at work where you get home from work, some days feeling feeling totally drained and exhausted but at other days feeling energized and motivated. And it's such an incredible way of looking at it, actually. Thank you. I'm glad. And the thing that I realized is that productivity basically takes care of itself once you've figured out how, how do I have more energizing days. So interesting. And what are the, therefore the components of what makes something feel as if it's giving you energy? Mm. And that ties into intrinsic motivation. It ties into enjoyment. It ties into working with other people in some capacity. And instead of then thinking, my work, my work drains me, let me quit my job and do something else. It's more about, okay, my work drains me. What, what can I do that's under my control to make it be more energizing, to activate this dynamo? And I think that's been the secret of my own productivity because people would always ask me, how are you so productive? How, how do you do all these things? Oh, you're a doctor and a YouTuber and a business, et cetera, et cetera. But it never felt as if I was having to force myself. I don't really vibe with the idea of grit. That, um, is it Carol, Carol Dweck? No, um, talks about, or this idea of uh, willpower and like, suffering and like all that stuff that David Goggins talks about. For me, it's all felt very like, I, I'm just trying to have fun and trying to be energized. And if something is not that, i.e. medical school, then how do I make it more fun? How do I make it more energizing? How can I incorporate little aspects? Oh, that makes this thing, this otherwise boring thing more fun. And that's kind of the lens that I'm trying to approach productivity so through. So counterintuitive and so clever, honestly. The idea of I, yeah, productivity is basically how can I how can I achieve the maximum I can with the amount of energy available to me? Yes. What you're saying is 
forget the amount of energy available to you. Let's have you have more energy. Exactly. Let's right? regenerate That's the energy. So clever and regenerate the energy by harnessing some of it or by at least not wasting some of it. Yeah. I think it's a very clever way of looking at it. So you, you mentioned a few examples. Pick one, like one technique that you think makes people have a lot more fun. So the way that we're currently splitting it is the three P's, <laughs> three mm -hmm. P's uh, power, play, and people. And so if we talk about the power one, um, you know, there's this idea in the field of motivation, intrinsic motivation, when you do something for the reward of doing the thing itself, rather than for some kind of extrinsic reward. And you and I talked about this in the sense of finite and infinite games. And so the question then becomes like, what are the ways in which we can manufacture intrinsic motivation? Some of the things we do because we enjoy them anyway, like I'm having this conversation because it's kind of fun. Um, and sometimes we play video games just for the sake of enjoying them. But what if it's like our day job? What if it's studying for med school exams where you know it's not really that important, et cetera, et cetera? How do you then make yourself be more motivated to do it? And I think in a way it's, it's, it's about power. It's about feeling this combination of freedom slash autonomy and basically autonomy and competence, which is part of self-determination theory, this field of motivation. Yeah. How can I have the feeling that I am showing initiative and taking ownership of this thing? And how can I have the feeling that I'm getting better at this thing? And those two things, initiative and improvement, I think are the main strategies for being more energized in your work in terms of power. Initiative in terms of, and it's somewhat counterintuitive, I think, because, you know, I remember, you know, back when I used to not enjoy medical school, I was thinking, oh, okay, this is not fun. I just need to get through this. I just need to do the bare minimum to pass the exam. But weirdly, if you do the bare minimum and just show up and kind of clock in and clock out, it's very hard to be energized. In a way, being more energized requires you to put a little bit more effort in and take the initiative, start a new project, negotiate with your boss to be like, hey, I want to try this new thing. Even just sort of adapting a process to make it more efficient. Those are the ways that we can, we can take initiative in our work. And that's profoundly energizing when we feel like we have autonomy, freedom. And similarly, when we, when we feel like we're improving. So figuring out a way to just get better at the thing. Even if the thing is really boring, just finding a way to improve at it and improve and approach it more like a craftsman would. Um, I think is profoundly energizing. I love that. I think that's spot on. When, it, when is the book out? It's not ready. In theory, sometime in 2024. <laughs> Just need to sit down <laughs> and actually write it. 2024? Yeah. That's a big teaser, my man. I know. No, it is a big teaser. I, I, but I love it's, the concept. It's ages away, yeah. Are you planning to do some videos on it uh, before it's a book? I think so. Probably, yeah. Yeah, this one, I mean, I'm, at the moment, I'm really struggling to write it. So your writing advice on our previous recording really helped. <laughs> um, but one thing that I'm going to try and do is as you do sort of map out the kind of subroutine of what, what's happening in each of the chapters and then just make a video about each one. Mm. And if I've made the video about it, I, I know how to make a video, but for some reason for me, writing a book feels like a really big deal. And then I clam up and, you know, the words yeah. don't flow, but yeah. making a video feels like the easiest thing in the world. I can make a video. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that if I just make 30 videos and then string them together and package it up so, as a book. So believe it or not, that's actually exactly how I wrote this. Really? Yeah. So, oh. the way, so by, by the way, guys, this is part of the mini series we're recording, uh, around the time of publishing that little voice in your head, uh, which is out uh, May 26th. The way I wrote it is actually, I wrote it on PowerPoints first. Oh. And then I taught it to three groups of people, which gave me feedback. Yeah. And then I started to write it, which was actually quite effective. Of course, this is much bigger than what I started teaching, but I, I only started to write it when I had already taught it, which I think made a big difference. That's a great idea. I should do that. I can I'm just like, like the, it's your, it's your medium. You're very yeah. comfortable with that. Yeah. Even, even like not even necessarily making a video. I could just like put up a zoom webinar or something, mm -hmm. invite my audience, whoever wants to join. Yeah. Now I teach it to people. 
I think so. Oh, that's great. I mean, I, the, the other way of doing it is yeah. you can actually, I'm teasing here, but one way of doing it is to mark one of your 7,000 videos, or I don't know how many you have, mark like 12 of them and then call someone and say, write a book about those. And then, and then there you go, yeah. have a book right there. That could be good. Okay, I, I want to talk about some of your five categories. Yes. First of all, I actually love the fact, even though when we spoke about it, you said some people think that you don't have a theme. I think you have a very good theme. Your theme is basically, I'm going to make your life better. Okay. And and there are subcategories within that, mm. you know, as we said, health, wealth, uh, love, uh, impact, and, and happiness. I, wa- I want to talk about wealth. I mean, you, you, you've done really well uh, in terms of building businesses, small businesses in, in their nature, but combining them together to have a YouTube channel, to have your podcast, to have, you know, uh, all of those little efforts, but together they're wonderful uh, at creating a business that moved you from med school graduate to someone who's successful, who's looking for a place to expand your business for, you know, an easier life and so on. So what does wealth mean to you now that you've seen a part of your life where the NHS was not paying amazingly and Mm. now you have a very successful business with lots of revenues? Yeah. And I think that for, for most of us, the sort of the structure of a full-time job, which is what we've decided in this capitalist society is the thing that everyone should do actually makes it quite hard to have the freedom from obligation and the freedom to do the things that you want because you're giving 80,000 hours of your life, kind of the nine to five. For a lot of us, it's way more than that. Um, Giving that to your employer. Um, And so generally thinking about wealth, the way that I think of it at least is that let's try and do the Tim Ferriss thing of multiple streams of income, preferably passive, so that I've got my bills taken care of with stuff other than my full-time job. And now if I can want to continue work because it's fun, then great. I continue it because I genuinely want to do it. And then I'll probably even perform better because I genuinely want to do the thing. But if I'm doing it for the sake of earning a paycheck, that extrinsic motivation, um, that to me seems like a not very anti-fragile way of living life. So that's the thing that I try and, and, and do for myself and therefore document for the YouTube channel as well. I think that's fantastic input. I mean, but, but not everyone can do this, right? So, so you, you chose, I think, a discipline that really describes you. I mean, you've, as you said, you, you were always a teacher, right? But not everyone's like that. So, so if you're an accountant in some company somewhere yeah. and you have to show up and look at the books and so on and so forth, yeah. how would someone figure out what it is that fits them? Yeah, I don't know. It's really hard. <laughs> there's no, yeah, there's no easy way. Uh, one, one strategy if is to kind of quote, monetize your passions. Um, if someone who's an accountant, but enjoys, I don't know, practicing close-up magic. This is a thing that some of my friends do. And, you know, that starts off as a hobby, but then it becomes monetizable if you start actually putting yourself out there and doing gigs, doing a restaurant gig here and there. And now from that restaurant, maybe you land a corporate gig and corporate gig pays maybe $10,000. And then, you know, there's, there's options like that. It's it's very easy for me to sit here and say monetize your passions because obviously not everyone has a, a passion that is amenable to monetization or the life circumstances to make that happen. Um, but... That's, that's one way of doing it. Yeah, honestly, it's, it's genuinely really hard. It's again, again, like I, I, I speak to a lot of people through my, my YouTuber Academy, this, this course that I teach that helps people become YouTubers who are trying to do some kind of content creation stuff on the side. But if you have a full-time job and you have a family and you have kids, where are you going to find the time to like, I don't know, spend 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week, edit, learning how to edit YouTube videos and stuff. 
So it's not an, it's not an easy path. Um, one one book I really like is actually The Millionaire Fast Lane by M- MJ DeMarco, which has a bit of a clickbait title, but it's really genuinely good at distilling the principles of business. And basically his argument is that, look, if you want to make money, you can either save loads of money and then squirrel it away in the S&P 500 or whatever, or you can try and build a business that helps you make large amounts of money fairly quickly, quickly as in, in a 10-year time, time frame. Um, and so... Yeah, that's the thing that I try and I, I, I don't like to give people advice on this, but that's the thing I've, I've tried to do for myself, like figure out what is a business that I can build that takes advantage of the things that I'm good at and the things that I enjoy that hopefully then can make money further down the line. My feeling, actually, when you said the 80,000 hours at work, yeah. I think that's the biggest challenge in life because it's not 80,000 hours busy. It's just 80,000 hours at work. When I ran a a big portion of Google, I always dared people. I said, so how many hours of the day are you actually doing something? And for most of us, it's like at most three hours of Mm. the eight hours. And, you know, the rest, we show up at meetings and pretend to be busy and, you know, stand somewhere and, you know, have a conversation that has the word synergy in it. And (laughs) it's like, basically, we're just, you know, we're, we're feeding that monster that's called employment so much of our time and attention while maybe, you know, when I wrote Soul for Happy, I wrote half of it at work. And literally, I was, I was not shy about it. I would occasionally get a team walking in to present something to me, and they were not very ready. And I would openly say, look, guys, you booked a couple of hours for this. You're obviously not ready. Leave, go work on it so that you can make it better, and I'm going to sit down and write. I mean, nothing wrong with that. I mean, of course, I was a very senior manager. But honestly, I think what happens is that most people at work are unable to kickstart something in the hours that they have idle. So they either pretend by sending more emails that flood everyone's email inbox and annoy everyone, or they, they use the time to swipe on Instagram without anyone looking at them. And maybe the difference would be you can use that time to do something else, read an article or, you know, learn yeah. about something. Yeah, it's funny you say that. This is ex- exactly how I built my YouTube channel. Um, yeah. <laughs> in, you know, at work, you're sitting at a desk in between patients where you've got five, 10 minute gap in between like chasing a blood results or mm-hmm. you've called up radiology and they're like, oh, consultants away, they'll call you back. You kind of have downtime for the next 10 minutes. One option is to get your phone out and go on Instagram. Uh, the thing that I would do is I op- would open up Notion on the crappy Windows NHS computers mm-hmm. and log into my account and be like, all right, cool, let's plan the next video. Mm. And within five, 10 minutes, I could draft out some bullet points for a video. And I, I remember vividly, vividly I, was, I was on a night shift. And this was kind of uh, in, in my second year of being a doctor. And a friend of mine messaged me on WhatsApp being like, hey, bro, I'm interested in getting started with investing. What do I do? And I thought, huh, okay. I started writing a thing to him. And I realized, hang on, this is a really good video <laughs> how to get started <laughs> with investing. And so just I had an hour spare on this night shift. I just kind of drafted out this whole video, like half of the video. And that became a video that came out on the channel a few months later and has gotten like 3 million views and is one of our most success, successful videos because it was me explaining something to a friend and just copy pasting that into a YouTube video and thinking, oh, this, this is a good video topic. Mm. So I think it is about using these little pockets of time here and there. But I, I, I don't like to say it because it makes me sound very hustle culture, productivity, bro. <laughs> and there is a little bit of a, a backlash against that these days. No, but I actually, I actually believe that. So I, yeah. I, I'll tell you openly, I think the biggest, biggest deterrent and the biggest reason why people don't succeed in many other things other than work when you're occupied with that eight to 10 hours a yeah. day of work is that they're unable to recognize the idle time. And for me, I've started more than 20 businesses in my life. And for all of them, I've never really run a business until I stopped corporate work, but I always had co-founders. And the idea was I never really underserved the company I was working for, but there was always idle time. And, and instead of having the idle time idle, 
you can use it to do other things. There's also idle time when you're binge watching Netflix. There's also idle time when you're a big football fan. I think big football fans are probably the least likely people in the world to start something new because there's so much football out there. Yeah. I mean, not, not don't mean that in a, in a, I'm just making a joke, but I think <laughs> the reality is that there is so much time that you can put into those things if you put your mind to it. Let's jump then into investment. You were talking about, yeah, maybe you can save some money, put it in SP 500 or whatever. It seems today that the big topic is stuff like cryptocurrency and all of those new NFTs. Yeah. Do you advise for or against? Generally, I advise, and uh, you know, as a non-financial advisor, what I tell my friends is, look, put 20% of your portfolio in crypto, whatever. Hmm. <laughs> put, put the rest in the S&P 500. That's kind of what I do. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. I don't really think about it too hard. I think, actually, this is, this is again, one of my more controversial views, but I think, I think it's very true. I think if I was a young person, or even not a young person, if I was someone to, in the world today wanting to build a business that made money, I would just learn to become a Web3 developer. It wouldn't be that hard. There's a few tutorials out there on how you program in Solidity, which is the Ethereum blockchain programming language. And the demand for Web3 developers is absolutely through the roof. I think the mistake people make is that I want to make money through crypto. Therefore, let me passively hop on a project someone else is doing and invest in this random coin or invest in Bitcoin or Ethereum and hope for the best. Whereas I suspect what I would be doing is let me figure out how I can become one of those creators in the space how can I build my own Web3 project that other people can then invest in? Because all the investors are never, dabbling in crypto. So how can I build the skills and become the person that everyone wants, as opposed to just trying to put my money in there in some get-rich-quick scheme? So that's probably how I'd approach it. But again, easy for me to say sitting here. Oh, very, 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 very you know, eye-opening. I think that's actually the right way to do it. If I had invested in Google in 2007 when I joined versus working for Google, I think I made more money working for Google. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Let's shift then. So this is wealth. This is wealth. Health. Health. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't. I, I should probably stop apologizing for this, but I feel like I really have no original thoughts on, on the topic of health. The topic of wealth, well, fine, I've you, kind you of had, built my own. You had quite a few original thoughts on the topic of wealth. <laughs> oh, so, so, yeah, so, so keep going. Yeah, yeah the topic of wealth, I've, I've sort of done it. I've kind of built my own thing on the side, and so I feel like I have something to say. On the topic of health, I'm literally just like, I know this is super important. As per Stephen's Happy Sexy Millionaire, health is your first foundation. I read that, I was like, yeah, I, f I fully agree with this. Naval Ravikant talks about this quite a lot, about how people worry about money and then health and then happiness, but it really should be the other way around, happiness and health and, and then money. And then there, there is that quote of, the healthy man has 900 problems, the unhealthy man has only one. And, and so <laughs> That's this- That's such a great quote. Yeah, there's, there's, there's all of these thoughts and quotes and stuff going on in my head. And so one thing I always try and remember is when I'm looking back on my life. Okay, so there's kind of two ways of approaching this. One is sort of the deathbed test of like, oh, when you're on your deathbed, what do you wish you'd spend more time doing? I think generally on, on the deathbed, unless someone is, is, is dying- particularly young of a chronic condition caused by bad health, they might not wish, I wish I'd spent more time working out. They probably wish I wish I spent more time with my family. But if I think 10 years from now, what will I want my 10 year old self to have done? I think a big part of that would be health themed and another big part would be relationships themed. So things like posture, things like muscle mass, things like flexibility, things like eating right, things like learning how to cook. This is all the stuff that I now have in my, in my mind as this is a priority. And it's a priority that like, it's one of those things that doesn't have a deadline. And I think when things don't have a deadline, it's very easy to procrastinate on them because a deadline motivates action. 
But health never has a deadline. Like, there's no deadline for... There is. I promise you. Oh, there is? <laughs> oh, my God, there is. I mean, yeah. I, I, I cannot support what you're saying more. Yeah. So I was very athletic yeah. until I think 28, 29, when I had a very bad injury that got me to stop for a couple of years. And then I became, didn't care about health at all until I came into my 40s. But I can promise you, the way I worked out when I was in my mid-40s, I did eight workouts a week. Each was two hours or more. Oh, wow. Some of them were very serious hit. And I was still, I still had the belly. I mean, I can guarantee you that if I had done that when I was 23, yep. I would be Arnold. Like, yeah. <laughs> I have no doubt about it. And interestingly, of course, a lot of research will support that. Your muscle memory, your testosterone, and mm. so on and so forth. But also your endurance to be able to do that stuff, your available time to be able to do yeah. that stuff is so much more available when you're younger. And, you know, the one thing, of course, I went, worked through it and I found a way and I was quite athletic, uh, even in my mid-40s. But the way, the, the thing that never came back, and I, I, all, I really say this to a lot of people, is because I didn't have the muscle mass when I was in my 30s, I loaded my bones and my joints with load that they were not supposed to be carrying. And so these will never be fixed. I cannot run a marathon ever again because my knees have carried so much weight that they shouldn't have carried when I was in my 30s. So there is an interesting deadline. I don't want to scare anyone. Yeah. But definitely don't go through your life for several years like I did yeah. without actually having the body that is supposed to carry you through those years. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, so earlier earlier this morning at half past seven, Gordon, uh, our videographer and my gym buddy, we we had a little workout in my, in my flat this morning, and afterwards I was like, oh god, that was that was really hard. And the thing Gordon said is, you'll thank yourself when you're a pensioner or something like that. Like you, your health is your biggest pension. Absolutely, like, oh, that's that's nice. It, hard, hard for me to imagine like forty years in the future, but I just know in, in intellectually that that's going to be a thing. And so, optimizing for taking care of my health, whatever that looks like, I think is time and money well spent. Any extreme diet views that you discuss? Like, are you like a vegan yeah. diehard or a... Not yet. So I've only recently started to get into, into the health stuff. I think, yeah, I've been too focused on the capitalist machine of more, <laughs> more success money. and more money. Yes. And now I'm like, okay, let's, let's think about the health stuff. So I've been getting into David Sinclair, the Lifespan book and the podcast, Andrew Huberman Lab podcast, and all this stuff around, you know, this is a, a whole series that I'm going to explore on the channel as I figure it out in terms of, okay, everyone says being vegan is really good for you. Is that true? Let's figure this out. Let's look at the research. Let's speak to the academics on the podcast and so on. All right, cool. What about the Mediterranean diet? What about intermittent fasting? What about calorie restriction? What are these different things? And then which is the one that I'm going to use for myself, which fits in with my life and kind of 80-20s myself to having a diet that's like 80% there uh, with hopefully 20% of the effort. So I haven't figured out the answer yet, but I, that's that's my journey for the next year. The, 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 the hyper-efficient businessman is even there on the 20% of the effort. It's, it's got to be done, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So shift. Um, attractive, young, successful. Many, many, many girls would be interested to be with you. Attractive, oh, thank you. Uh, you really are. I, mean, I told you there has there is this, the, the likability. You're a, you're a nice person like everyone should flock to you i mean everyone says nice guys finish last so i don't, I don't know what you're taking yeah <laughs> that's true that was my biggest i promise you it was my biggest trauma when i was a young man because i was always a good man mm. like i was kind respectful you know i opened the door for the lady yeah, and the so girls want to go for the bad boy absolutely it's like yeah. what's wrong people <laughs> when i when i got older i think and my segment of the market is no longer in their 18s and 20s yep. i think when women get into their 30s and and later they go like 
what was I doing? Mm. Like, I'm actually looking for a reliable man. That was when I started to become a good commodity. So there you go. (laughs) Age makes a difference. But you, you still made a choice to commit. So you now, let's call her Jane. You're with Jane for more than eight months now. Yeah. Long term as per your generation's guidelines. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) What are the differences? Why first? And then how does it feel to be in a slightly longer term? Yeah. So again, like I have a bit of a, there's that phrase that you like, which is the mind of an engineer. And I think Mm. even though I'm a medic, it's a similar, similar kind of, kind of thought process. If I think about, and it's going to make me sound like a psychopath, so apologies. But if I think about what is the function of a relationship, what is the function of like a family or, you know, that kind of stuff? Or rather, you know, the, I think the function of a relationship is to have a family. A unit. A unit, yes. Mm. And I think the function in a way of a, of a family is twofold. Number one, it's a, it's a hedge against loneliness in middle age. And number two, it's a source of meaning, profound meaning. Or so parents tell me. And so I think I know I want a family. Because I know I like the idea of having a house and getting a holiday with a family and like being surrounded by little kids and like watching them grow. And I know from people I've spoken to that that's a profoundly rewarding experience. I know the way to get there is to have a relationship in a way where the partner is like a co-founder in this business unit that we call a family. And so given that, I know I want that. Again, this is one of those things that what will me in 10 years have regretted not doing when I was 27 or 28? And I know the answer to that is going to be like not taking dating more seriously. And so actually this book, if I grab it, oh, this is a really good book. How to, how to not die alone by Logan Urie. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. So I did a, did a video about this, interviewed her on the podcast. It was great. Um, this was actually recommended to me by my now girlfriend when we were initially kind of dating. I was on Hinge, just going multiple dates. And she said, this book is really good. And this book takes a very kind of tech bro approach to dating. Tech approach. Yeah, sort of like a more uh, sort of systematic approach to dating mm. and recognizing that like dating is profoundly different from love. Love is instinctive, but dating is really not in the modern world. And so what are the ways that you can optimize your profile? What are the ways that you can kind of optimize your experience of dating and, and so on? And so I started kind of applying some of these principles. It's it's very big on systems. So me and Jane, we do a regular relationship review in like a Notion page where every three or four weeks we'll like go through the toggles and answer these questions for ourselves. And it's been profoundly helpful. But coming back to your original question, the reason for why is because I know, again, like it's... I want to be able to look back at myself 10 years later and think I'm really proud of the decisions I made when I was 27. And I think dating is one of those important ones. Hmm. Please tell me if I'm wrong. I would, I would love to <laughs> no, get I, your perspective. I, like we said on our conversation on your podcast, I believe that life is seasons. Life is context, right? Mm. And definitely, definitely anyone who had not had the experience of a wonderful, committed project with a partner in their life is missing out on a good chunk of life. I think it's a, it's definitely something to be considered. My wonderful, wonderful, wonderful friend, almost brother, and also the producer of this podcast, Monir, again, is a very handsome, very desirable man. And he lived a life where there were lots of interesting relationships in his life. And then we had that conversation and he's been in a long-term relationship for a while. And he says, there is something that I never felt before, Yeah. right? And of course, you know, as I said, life is seasons. So unless you experience that, you can't even quantify it. You know, it it seems to me that the feminine is much more innately aware of that than the masculine. The masculine is a little bit more about, you know, let's try and experience and experiment and see on and so on. But surprisingly, most of my hyper-masculine friends, when they get a taste of it, they interestingly start to say, ooh, 
that's different. Yeah. And for me, of course, specifically when, when I got together with Nibel, I don't know how many years ago, but my ex-wife building that project of a family together, honestly and truly defined me, made me the person that I am because I don't know how to say it any other way. Even in my career as a businessman for many, many, many years, I would expect to change jobs every 12 to 18 months. That's what High Flyers did until one of my managers once said, give me another year. And I was like, what? No, I am a high flyer. I need to change. He said, just give me another year and I'll promise you, you'll get to that job in a year's time. And that one year where you stick around teaches you so much. It makes you a different person. So he came back a year later and said, okay, time to move. And I was like, no, it's not time to move. I want one more. I, I really, I spent, spent seven years in that, of course, growing in responsibility and maturing and becoming a better businessman. But probably the thing that made me complete as a businessman was that longer assignment rather than, uh, you know, uh, when we spoke on your podcast, I mentioned that I am in a different phase now, more of seasons of life, if you want. But, uh, but definitely, I think it's something that everyone deserves in their life. When you speak about love on your channel and relationships, your most favorited video was? Yeah, I think it was actually the, my review of my oh, video yeah, about this yeah, book, yeah. How to Not Die Alone, which kind of basically talks about the three phases of dating, mm -hmm. of like kind of preparing the profile and then like going on dates and then what you do once you're in a relationship. And just sort of thinking about it in those almost mathematical, systematic ways, yeah. I think was I appealed to the, that side of me, the engineer brain side of me, yeah. and made me think, hmm, trying to find a partner is a project. Like any project, it has OKRs and KPIs and all that stuff. So yeah. let's figure out what those are and figure yeah. out what are the things I can do to optimize this process as much as possible. That's so interesting. So th this is the biggest pushback I get on finding love. Mm. So I'm, wor I'm working on finding love, which is also about love and romance. And I basically, I call it the economics of love and romance. Mm. And the romantic ones, when I tell them, but hey, it's a process. Yeah. There is finding love, love is there at the end, but the process of getting there is a process, right? And you need to deal with that process with a bit of logic, a bit of understanding, a bit of openness. And, yeah. and most people go like, oh, but then it's not that romantic. I'm like, okay, good luck. Uh, <laughs> you know, what can we do? Yeah. Okay, happiness, because no, 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 before happiness, let's talk about impact. Impact, yeah. I love what you're doing for the world. Oh, thank you. But you're one of the very few people that have the opportunity to do that because you have your audience, you have your followers and so on. What should you tell any one of our listeners about wanting to have an impact in life? So if, if you were still a doctor at the NHS and, yeah. and you had your day job and so yeah. on, does that mean there is no impact beyond that job or... Is there a way for people to live true to an impact? Yeah, again, I don't, I don't, I don't really know, but I have, I have a few thoughts. So I think there's like different types of impact. There's sort of micro impact and then there's sort of macro, mm -hmm. macro impact, shall we say. I think very few of us will actually have macro impact, like the whole change the world, that kind of stuff. And so let's talk about micro. Micro impact to me basically means making a difference in the lives of some people, whether those people are close to you or whether those people are not close to you. So for example, as a parent, you have a, an impact on your family and your local community, and that's all fine and dandy, and that's great. And I hope to have that someday if and when I become a parent. As a doctor, you have a strong impact on the individual patient in front of you. But if you think of it in sort of utilitarian terms, what is the marginal impact of a doctor in a country like the UK, which has a surplus of supply rather than demand? 
And it's, and so I think of like, if I wasn't a doctor, if I was removed from the system, removed from circulation as a doctor, what would happen? It's like someone else would fill my place because there's a surplus in a lot of specialties. And to be honest, most of the impact of a doctor is the impact of the system. Most of the Im individual impact on someone's health is not me as a doctor providing profound talent. It's the system as it should be. It's following guidelines. It's the nurses. It's the vaccines. It's the hygiene. It's all these other sanitation, all these other systems that cause people's people to get better if they, if they become ill or to not become ill at all. And so that is quite a utilitarian way of thinking, but I think that's sort of the way I approach the question of impact. And I very much vibe with the philosophy of the effective altruism movement. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had a friend at, at university who's actually now my housemate, Lucia, and she was head of the Altruism Society of Cambridge, Effective Altruism, and introduced me to this idea, Peter Singer's The Life You Can Save, the idea that like, if you were to walk in the park and you see a child drowning in a pond in front of you, would you jump in and save the child? Yes, of course you would. Like everyone would. What if you were wearing an expensive suit and you had your iPhone 13 Pro Max in your pocket? Would you still jump in to save the child? Yes, of course you would. Even if that would cost you $3,000 of like suit and phone, of course you would jump in to save the child. What if you were happened to be walking along the border between France and Germany and the, you know, you're in France and the child's in Germany. Would you cross the border to say save the child? 100%, of course you would. What if there was a wall in the way? What if you could hear the child drowning, but you couldn't see them? Would you clamber over the wall and jump in to save the child? Of course you would. What if there was a child drowning in a pond in Kenya right now, and you could donate $3,000 to save the life of that child? Would you do it? Uh, I don't know. Like, I can't see them. It's very far, far away. And it's that thought experiment mm. has never, like, always made me think, ah, oh, crap. The answer is obviously yes. If, if I would save the child, the life of a child in front of me, surely I should be willing to donate $3,000 to save the life of a child who I cannot see, who is the child of someone else rather than someone I can see. And so in a way now when I think of impact, you know, there's this amazing organization called 80,000 Hours, which helps you figure out the most impact you can have with a career. And they do a bunch of analyses. There's a charity evaluator called GiveWell, which evaluates the ROI, the cost effectiveness of certain charities. And there is a pledge called Giving What We Can where you pledge to donate 10% of your income every year to effective charities. And so I took this pledge three years ago. And so every year I pledge 10% of my income to effective charities. For example, the Against Malaria Foundation, where you can donate $3,000 and literally save a statistical life. And so for me, I make way more money doing this YouTube stuff than I do as a doctor. And so the way I square that is like, hey, 10% of the stuff I'm making now actually, quote, saves more lives than me working as a clinical doctor in the UK. And I think that's just that utilitarian aspect of impact. I think there are other forms of impact like teaching and helping others and raising the aspiration of other people, working on the environment. But teaching is the thing that I particularly care about. 10% is an interesting number because 10% is the same for every one of us. Oh, what do you mean? 10% for you might be more money, but it's 10%. Yeah. 10% for someone else who is making less, but still has enough for their life is maybe less, but it's still 10%. Yeah. And I, I wonder why people wait until the point where they feel that, okay, I have, you know, made enough money now to start having impact. But it's also the, I mean, the, the thought experiment is just mind blowing, really, when you think about it. I think there is a, if you don't mind me saying, there is a, a negative feeling that comes from the number of children that are drowning across the world, that none of us is saving. Mm. You know, it's, it's quite interesting. When you think about it, the way you described it, you start to tell yourself, hold on, so what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> right? like, why am I not engaging? And I think it's quite eye-opening, maybe a call to action for everyone. Can I ask you of everything that you've achieved in life? What do you think is your biggest achievement? Hmm. 
I don't like the word achievement. Great answer. Uh, <laughs> what do you like then? I'll, I'll use another word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't like the word achievement because it, it almost sounds too extrinsic. It's like, in a way, an award or an accolade. And maybe this is just my conditioning of going to a fancy school and then going to a fancy university and optimizing for grades. But those sorts of achievements, I think, I don't feel particularly proud of because mm. I know that I was dealt a good hand. I have a high IQ. My mom did a good job of education, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, all of these, all of these good things are happening. So I, I, I can't really take credit for any of it. I guess when I think of, when I think of kind of what's felt like the most meaningful thing in my life, number one, I'd say the YouTube channel. Like that's had pr profound sense of meaning, mostly in, well, a the fact that it's unlocked the the ability for me to pursue the things that I want to do, but also that genuinely people come up to me and like, oh my God, you changed my life because ABC emails that, that you also get. There's something that feels really nice about that. But the other slightly weird one is that when I was in med school, I, I took part in the in the hospital's pantomime, which is this production, all the medical students get together, there's about a cast of a hundred people. And so in one year I was in the singing troupe, in one year I was directing it, and in one year I was a cast member. And something about that experience was so profoundly meaningful. And I think it was the fact that there were a bunch of super talented people in their various fields, like music or acting or singing or drama or painting the set or doing the lights, ridiculously talented, coming together for the sake of a bigger cause than themselves, where we were donating money to charity. This was a big production and doing it like as a team. Mm. And I think that's something about that is so good. And I, honestly, I, I look back at that time and think it was one of the happiest times of my life going to those rehearsals and those performances. And so I remember that feeling a lot and I try and recreate it in my life. Yeah. Where How can I get people together who are, who are good at the things they do, working, working towards some kind of bigger cause. And I think that's why, that's sort of what we're trying to do with this team here in the studio. Yeah, that's a profoundly meaningful experience. I, I, uh, that's definitely, definitely it. Even if that team together, by the way, is you and your sister, I mean, so for mm. the people listening, if you and your sister decide that every Thursday night you're going to cook and give sandwiches to the homeless yeah. or whatever, and she's really one hell of a sandwich maker. I think we're going to be doing fine. Like, it's just very rewarding. I, I, we, we did that, Nibel, I, and myself for quite a few years, you know, when we were together in one household. Mm. Nibel was a magnificent cook. I was a good driver. That's all I really, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? I am a good cook now, but, you know, at the time I never would compete. And so that joint effort where I would be there cutting stuff and, you know, helping her cook, and then she's with me helping it distribute, I think was a was a wonderful, uh, wonderful setup. And it doesn't have to be your family. I mean, I've done that with so many of my friends as well. And it's just wonderful in every possible way. Okay, I don't want to take too much of your time. I know that the team has been very kind and helpful for us to record this in your place. But I, let's talk about happiness. Mm. Define happiness. Previously, before our conversation, I would have defined happiness as distinct from contentment. I would have said contentment is the general feeling of feeling calm and serene and at peace with life. I would have said happiness is sort of moment by moment feeling of pleasure. Mm. I think I've now changed my mind on that definition. And I agree with yours that happiness is actually that contentment piece. And actually the sort of the way I've been thinking about it is sort of, I think there are two things. I think there's happiness and there's meaning. And obviously there's some overlap in the Venn diagram. But when I think of, that, of them in my mental model of happiness and meaning, I think happiness is I like my life the way it is. And meaning is I'm useful to other people. Mm, beautiful. And if I can just do those things, if I can be useful to other people while also enjoying my life day to day, then I think that's the recipe for ultimate happiness or whatever you want to call it. 
What do you reckon? I think that's an amazing answer, honestly. I mean, I actually, that definition between meaning and happiness is quite interesting because, yeah, combine those two and you probably are living a life worth living. If yeah. You, yeah, I, yeah. I love that. Very and much. I guess... Yeah, I guess I, I guess I think of the distinction because because for example, parents. There's all that those studies that you've come across, I'm sure. That like when you have a kid, your day to day happiness, i.e., uh, whatever the phrase psychologists use, life evaluation or whatever, subjective well being, mm. your your day to day subjective well being actually goes down and then just sort of goes down and stays down. And then when the kids leave for college, it, it goes back <laughs> up again. Mm. But you ask any parent, like, would you rather not have had kids? They all say, well, no, obviously not. Like, it's a profoundly meaningful experience. Mm. And so those, I think those are different things. Subjective well-being of like, how happy do I feel day to day versus how meaningful does my life feel? I think they're slightly different things that have overlap mm. a bit. And mm. yeah. Beautiful description. What, if you were to give your top tip for people to find happiness, what would that be? Honestly, it would be to recognize that it's a choice. I, I very much vibe with all the stuff that you've talked about on this. I think that's just spot on. When I first discovered stoicism in at like the age of 18 or 19, it was initially through William Irvine's book and then through Darren Brown's book, Happy, which came out a few, a few years later. It just sort of felt like everything clicked into place where I was like, yeah, this is it. This is the one, you know, this difference between expectations and reality where we can lower our expectations. This idea of, you know, the dichotomy of control. There are certain things within our control, certain things that aren't. And for the things that aren't, we can just accept them because we can't control them anyway. For the things that are, we can change them. And just those profoundly simple insights, I think have always really resonated with me. And so anytime someone asks me, how do I become happier? I pass them on to either Happy by Darren Brown or Soul for Happy by you or The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Amazing. I uh, liked you a lot before we met today. Now that we've been five hours together, I like you even more. <laughs> oh, I think you. you're Very a wonderful kind. human being. I think you deserve your success and you really, really are making a difference. Very kind and generous for you to host me at your place. Very kind and generous for you to share so much wonderful, useful knowledge and wisdom. And if I was asked about what's making me happy this week, I think the idea, I mean, not maybe not the top tip, but the fact that I continue to meet such amazing people to have such profound conversations. It's all thanks to you, listeners, for giving us the opportunity, whether it's me or Ali or other podcasters, by you tuning in, you give us the opportunity to meet with amazing people that alter our life and hopefully alters yours. Uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, I truly and honestly urge you to go and follow Ali on YouTube, listen to his podcast, uh, listen to my conversation with him on our podcast. It was quite profound and quite personal. Man, yeah, those questions yeah, that you asked. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and... Honestly, in general, I think there is that beauty of a moment where you can slow down despite how busy your life is today. So thank you all for listening. Share this with others. Rate us well. Subscribe. Do whatever it is that people do on the internet. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.